I know there's, there's a lot of things, a lot of places we can go in our life that are, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later too, like things are really kind of business and everything is really packaged and, and put together and, and you know, we, we try to do a good job with the things we do here in our church, but we recognize everything is really a process, right? And if you think about your own life and I think about my own life, I go, well, I haven't arrived at something, so I don't want to necessarily portray that, you know, I, I've arrived at something. I'm not all put together. We're not all put together. And you know what? The string breaks on a guitar, and hey, isn't that just like life, right? The string breaks, and our string is broken, and we're just all together. And so I love that, even that announcement that Brad was making about our gospel groups. And we call those relationship-building circles. And I think building is really an important word in that. Because we're all in the process of being built and our relationships with each other in the process of being built. And so when you're here and you're new and you're with us, we're so glad you're here. And we're like, welcome to the process. We're not saying welcome to the finished product. I don't know if we'll ever have the finished product. But maybe that's what we have to offer is, you want to be on a process with some other people who are trying to build relationships and get to know God? Well, that's what we're doing here. So I'm just glad you're with us this morning. Uh, that being said, we're in the midst of a series here. Uh, we're going through the book of Titus from the New Testament, Paul's letter to Titus. This is our second part of it. And we're really just trying to look at the scripture, what it has to say. Um, I will confess to you, this was a very full week for me as I've even prepared for talking about this. We had um, from our church movement region about 30 uh, pastors from around our region came and met here in our building from Thursday afternoon through yesterday afternoon. It was a great time, very encouraging, just enjoyed hearing about what's going on and thinking about big picture and philosophical things. It's very good. The challenge, of course, is that uh, I don't necessarily just have you know, 48 hours spare time in my life, so we kind of have to pack everything, all the rest of the things I was doing around it. So hopefully uh, a level of unpreparedness doesn't come through in this morning's teaching on Titus. I just trust the Lord has some things for us here, and I'm just glad to be uh, together as a family this morning. So that being said, I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll just kind of dive into this and, and go from there. So Heavenly Father... Again, just a blessing and a, uh, a joy to be in your presence this morning in a family of believers. God, I, I really believe, I really believe the reason we get together is to be connected with each other. Because that's what you've asked us to do. And that somehow there's an expression of who you are in the connections we make with each other. And somehow, Lord, we recognize that because we're broken and we're sinful people, we kind of mess that up. And it's a process, and we're not there, and there's highs and lows and challenges, but we're not a put-together product. And God, we trust that someday, by your grace, for those of us who have received the free gift of salvation, we're going to get to walk into a world, into an eternity, where our relationships are whole and we are connected perfectly with you. So God, we look forward to that time. And in the meantime, we trust that what you've put in the scripture is truth for us to obey, not because you're some meanie, but because it means it's going to go better for our lives. 
so Lord, as we, as we tackle this passage, these first ten verses of Titus this morning, God, I know there's some things that can be really hard. It might even rub us the wrong way and go against the grain of our culture or our lives or decisions we've made. Lord, help us to hear from the word as from your mouth. And help us to apply it in our lives and just be real honest before you and trust that what you've asked us to do are things that are going to help our lives go better. Lord, thank you for even giving us this instruction book, Lord. Wow, what a loss. How, how lost we would be if we didn't have your instruction. So please guide us this morning here as we share in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so we'll, we'll go ahead and start here in the passage. Uh, we're in Titus chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 10. I've got the verses on the screen at the beginning here, uh, and then we'll kind of have little pieces as we go along, but if you want to be able to refer back to it, you can open your Bibles, or if you've got an electronic device, that's how, you know, I go to Launchpad on Wednesdays, and they kind of tease me, they go, oh, Greg's always got his phone, <laughs> that's what I always use, and I say because I like the different versions, I like to see a lot of different perspectives, and some of that may even come out this morning as we go through this. But anyway, I'll read it and we'll go from there. So, Paul says to Titus, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so that's the passage. And you might read that and say, wow, there's some really challenging things in there for us. Those are some hard things. And you know what? I don't know if I've got all the answers. I probably don't have all the answers. And maybe this is a dialogue. I don't know. But let's just dive into it and say, well, what maybe is God saying to us right here in this passage? And see how it can apply to our lives. So we'll start here at the beginning. I think it's interesting in this passage, at the beginning and at the end, he talks about doctrine, right? So like at the beginning he says, Titus, you teach sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Well, what is sound doctrine? Have you ever asked that? I go, I really just want to have good doctrine. God, could we just have good doctrine? And I almost wish, maybe you do too, that we read this passage because, Titus, you teach sound doctrine. And here is sound doctrine. And he would go through a list of these are all the doctrinal points. And believe this about the end times. And believe this about creation. And believe this about Christ. And about propitiation and all these things, right? Don't you wish he did that? (laughs) But he didn't do that, did he? He says, you teach sound doctrine. And we have to understand the context of saying this, right? He precedes this statement of 
teach sound doctrine with a list of character qualities for people who should be leaders in the church. In Titus 1.9, you see it on the screen there, it says, He, speaking of a leader in the church, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he gives this list of character traits. And as we talked about last week, the idea is that sound doctrine flows from good character. And he reinforces this because he follows it with another list of character qualities for everybody. He covers everybody with the list in the passage that we have today. And so we'll go through these character traits that are for all people. We'll go through those kind of one by one. But we should conclude from this that Paul's instructions to Titus are an indication that right character is foundational to teaching right thinking or right doctrine. Right character is foundational to teaching right thinking. So in some Christian circles, there's this this sort of, I don't know if it's a debate, or this tension between two big words. One of the big words is orthodoxy. The other one is orthopraxy, right? And so orthodoxy is really right belief. Can we have right beliefs? Can I believe the right things? And orthopraxy is, can I do the right things? Can I live the right way? And sometimes there can be this tension and some groups can swing to one end or the other. But I think there's a balance here in these things. The two things are related. They flow from each other. But we see here that, man, what does Paul say? To be able to teach the right way of thinking and the right way of living yeah, you've got to be living it yourself. You've got to be living it. Teaching of doctrine must stem from right character. And we know this intuitively because I ask this. Why are we so bothered by pastors in our world, in our culture, who fall, who commit moral errors and lose their position of authority? Why are we so bothered by that? We see CEOs, we see football players, we see people in all sorts of walks of life who commit the same sort of sins that so many pastors and leaders commit in the church in America, don't we? And yet, what happens to a pastor? That's it, generally speaking. That's it. That's his job. It's done. He no longer has that authority. Why? Because the teaching of right thinking comes from right living. And so we've got to be clear on this in our own lives, whether we're a church leader, a pastor, or not. If we're going to follow Christ, we've got to make sure that to pass on that what we see from the Scripture needs to come from our life. And so it's interesting to note this. You go into the Amplified Version, and this passage, it talks about sound doctrine. It says, which produces men and women of good character whose lifestyle identifies them as true Christians. So how do we know if somebody is a Christian? Well, we see it here in this passage, right? Some of you who've maybe been around Christianity, there was a song a long time ago, they will know we are Christians by our love. By our, Dave, you know that one. Dave and Diane, you guys know it. Yeah, by our love, by our love, they will know we are Christians by our love. Their orthopraxy, their lifestyle will identify them as Christians. And so I would ask of you today, what about you? Does your lifestyle identify you as a Christian? 
So if we got a lineup here, we all got, we got some people, we put some people off the street, and some of you, and we put you up here, and we brought people in and said, okay, here's the lineup, you know, like they have in the, the police, you know, movies and stuff. And we said, all right, we're going to examine these people's lifestyles. Would your life look any different than the person who doesn't know Jesus? They put you in that lifestyle lineup. Would you look different? If they looked at how you spent your money, would it look any different? If they looked at how generous you are within the church and outside of the church, would it look any different? What about how you spend your time? What about the things you say no to? What about the things you say yes to? Would it look any different? Would your lifestyle identify you as a Christian? Are you disciplined? Do you read the Bible? Do you pray? Do you give? Do you serve? Are you committed to fellowship to those relationship building circles? Or are you a win convenient Christian? Would someone look at you and say, that person is not making many sacrifices or any sacrifices for their faith? And so I think that's something that I, I go, wow, I got to work on that too. I'll be the first one to say, yeah. I'm not sure my lifestyle always identifies me as a true Christian. So I'm going to challenge you with that as we think through these things. And we're going to go through this list because Paul then launches into, here's the things to teach to everybody for how to have a lifestyle that identifies them as a true Christian. And so let's each one of us today as we go through these things and as they apply to you say, man, just be real honest and say, wow, maybe I need to grow a little bit in that or... Maybe I'm doing good in that, but I probably can still grow some more in that. So don't take any of this as some sort of condemnation on who you are and where you're at, right? We're all here together on this journey and building it, and none of us are perfect. I'll stand at the front of the line of the imperfect people in our church. I need to grow. So let's just go through these and just trust that God has something to say to each one of us today. Let's go through the character qualities of sound doctrine. Now, Paul sort of organizes this, right? He goes, older women, or older men, and older women, and younger women, and younger men, and bond servants, right? And so each one has some specific things, but one character quality that happens to weave through all of them, and I thought, let's just knock this one out of the way at the beginning, instead of having to hit it four different times, we'll just hit it once, is self-control. We see he talks about self-control on several of these things, and probably all of us could really use a little more self-control, right? Anyone? Anyone here perfectly self-controlled? Well, what does self-control mean? It means restraint exercised over one's impulses, emotions, or desires. Impulses, emotions, or desires. Wow. Another way, and we talked about this recently, is the idea of saying, man, do I say no to good stuff? Do I have self-control to say no to good stuff? Man, we think about Halloween. I don't know how anyone else likes candy. I've talked about that. I love sour candy. i got to say no to it sometimes, right? Too much of something I enjoy is not good. There's no self-control there. Man, even something that's happy, healthy and happy, like apples. You go, man, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. But man, if that was all you ate, I'm sure that wouldn't be good for you. Right, Jenny? (laughs) I don't know. Probably not. That was it. We'll we'll talk about that later. Works for my illustration, at least. (laughs) Self-control is a need. It's an obvious need for every single one of us to grow, isn't it? And I think that's especially true in this culture because our culture just seems to be organized, doesn't it, around getting us to be uncontrolled, right? Think of all of the stuff. 
all of the stuff that's all of the advertising, everything. The idea is that we would feed our impulses. Right? I'm so glad I got a TiVo for watching Broncos games so I can zip through the commercial. I can record it and watch it later and zip through the commercials so I don't have to be tempted to go out and feed my impulses. Just think about, you ever go to the grocery store? It's always here, more and more, this, this, this. Or you go to restaurants, it seems like everything's broken down into little pieces now because they want to feed your impulse. Like, didn't Country Buffet go out of business? Not that I liked eating there, but that was just, you know, just to help yourself. But the only thing now, it's like, oh, order this and this and this and this. It's just trying to feed our impulses. And so think about your life. And just do a little moment of evaluation on yourself. How is your self-control? How is your self-control? How are you relating with your impulses to media and entertainment, to food, to alcohol, to recreation, to some of you, video games, hobbies, spending money? Are you feeding your impulses or are you controlling them? I think that's what Paul's getting at here. So we want to move beyond self-control here. We'll talk about the next section, which is about older men. And now some of you are going, whew, I'm not an old man. I don't have to listen to this. <laughs> I trust there's something for each of us in each one of these sections, whether we fall into this category or not. And so Paul says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. That's a high bar. But let's start at the beginning, because we might want to exclude ourselves. And what is what do you suppose older means? What does older mean? Well, I think very clearly it means those probably who are more mature in the faith and maybe more mature in years and have been doing this for a while. But this, I think, can be very circumstantial or contextual, right? I'm still in my 30s, but probably to some of you, Josh probably sees me as an old man. <laughs> Josh and I hang out a lot, so that's, I'm not picking on him too much there. So maybe I'm an older man to some of you, and maybe to some of you I'm a younger man, and that's okay. So I don't know if it's always necessarily age, but it probably has a lot to do with maturity in life, maturity in faith, maturity in understanding. So in that sense, Paul doesn't really draw a line. He says, older men 65 and older are to be sober-minded. He doesn't say that. didn't tie it to getting Social Security checks or anything like that. He says these are some qualities. And so let's go through these, and trust, maybe they apply to all of us, but you might be saying, yeah, I'm probably an older man. Some of you older men, if I'm an older man to some, then some of you probably are too, right? Sober-minded. Older men are to be sober-minded. Well, another way to say that, some other translations use the word temperate. And we could really define that as being not given to excesses. Which, again, probably for all of us is good, but I think there's an idea, and we see it around us, maybe some of you have parents who are aging and that sort of thing, that as we get older, we tend to have a little more money, and maybe tend to have a little more time, and maybe when you were younger we had tighter belts. I really tighten that belt up here. I got my kid, and you know, as you start to grow and age, and your belt starts to loosen in more ways than one. We start to loosen up our standards. And if we loosen up our standards, we stop being temperate. And as we stop being temperate, we become ensnared, or we can become ensnared, by some of these excesses. 
think about midlife crises, right? That's sort of a stereotypical thing. I don't know. Dave, did you have a midlife crisis? <laughs> I don't think you did. He hasn't gotten there yet. Amen. <laughs> so when we get to the younger man section, that'll be about you. <laughs> Right? As these midlife crises. Well, it probably has to do a lot of things, but I sort of wonder if it has to do some of this with this concept of, yeah, I'm just getting older and I just don't really care. Right? But we've all sort of experienced that. We see somebody maybe who's a little bit older and we go, well, you may have the money, but was that really a good idea to buy a half a million dollar RV? You know, that kind of thing. Or you go, wow, what is that? But I think that's what's happening. And Paul is warning us against that. Be temperate. He ties it to being self-controlled, doesn't he? Next one he talks about is dignified. Be dignified. Older men are to be dignified. Well, what does that mean? It means be worthy of respect. Be worthy of respect. And respect is what us as men, we're just wired by God to desire respect. But the call here is to be worthy of that respect. As we age, I think there's a tendency we want to rest on our accomplishments. Look what I've done. Look what my life has been. Look what is there. But there is a need for us to keep pressing on, especially in the faith. We need to keep pressing on. There's that tendency again for men, I think, particularly as we age, to just let it go to seed. <laughs> Right? You ever seen that? Seen, you'll see certain people, I've known them over time, and you go, man, it's like that guy stopped in 1988. And he's got like an 80s sweater and a, you know, a beard and a hairstyle, and you're like, do they still give those out at the hair salons? Or, you know, it's that same idea. I think we can do that spiritually. We can do that with other things, with health and exercise. We can do that with our manners. We can do that with our dignity. Spiritually, we can do that. And so what makes us worthy of respect is not necessarily how we've lived, although that's part of it. It's what are you doing today? How are you living today? Paul calls us to be worthy of respect. The next thing is to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. I think you'd all agree, right? These things don't just happen. I'm not just, I woke up in the morning, hey, I'm sound in faith today. They take work. They take effort. It's a marathon. Life is a marathon. The spiritual journey is especially a marathon. Will you be steadfast to the end? Will you be steadfast? Will you finish well in the faith? I love this verse in 2 Timothy at the end of Paul's life. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I don't know about you, but I want to be able to say that. I want to be able to say that at the end. I think younger people, young men might be more fit to carry heavier burdens, spiritually or otherwise. We might be more fit to do that and you take an operation like the church. Yeah, young men should carry the load. But older men have the opportunity to steer the ship by imparting wisdom and direction. But no one will listen to you. No one wants your wisdom if it's not backed up by these character traits convicting to me. Paul goes on from older men and he talks about older women. He says older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Again, older, I think, just means experienced. 
More experienced women are to be reverent in behavior and so forth. And I think there's a huge implication, we'll talk about this a little more, there's an implication to be passing that on, to teach, to teach that. So, first he says they're to be reverent. We could define reverent, as you see on the screen, showing deep or solemn respect. To be reverent. Well, for who? Reverent for who? Show respect to who? Well, probably to other women. Right? you got to respect other women. There will be more on that here in a minute. Respect for your husbands. How about you? But probably the, any of you who are married, you understand, man, the, the closer, the more we get we're married, the longer we are. As a man, you go, man, I don't know if I'm really that respectable because she really sees all the sides of me. But that's what Paul's calling older women to do is be reverent for their husbands. Be reverent for your church leadership. Respect them. Respect the people you work for, the ones you work with, and so on and so forth. Be reverent. He then goes on and says, Older women are to not be slanderers. Some other translations say malicious gossips. Malicious gossips. I thought of that terminology, don't be a hen. Don't be hens who are pecking each other. But I'm not really sure about that terminology. I own chickens. I own them because they give me eggs. But they all seem to be really nice to each other. We have seven of them. They never peck each other. No one, none's ever killed the other. So I don't know how accurate that, maybe that's just an old wives' tale. I don't know. And I think this is probably fairly obvious how you can be a slander. If you're, if you're an older woman, you're probably nodding your head and going, yeah, that's a really easy thing to be a malicious gossip. And we recognize that words have really two choices. They can either build up or tear down. As people, as a church, as followers of Christ, let's be people who use our words to build each other up. Amen? Yeah. Alright, the next one, he says, Older women are not to be slaves to much wine. Not to be slaves to much wine. And this is probably fairly obvious, even in our alcohol-soaked culture. I think it's interesting too, right? There's still, this was written, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and there's still a stereotype, isn't there, for older women. Oh, we really love the wine. There's like a whole cottage industry about making little magnets and signs and stuff you put up in your house about how much you love wine, right? Geared at a certain facet. But that being said, I think the main point here is this. What are you relying on for stability and joy? Regardless of who you are, are you relying on something like alcohol? other things? Or are you relying on Christ? Let's rely on Christ. He goes on and he says, older women should teach what is good. I think the focus here is not on what is good. It's probably a no-brainer as to what is no good or what is good. Yeah, we want to pass on good stuff. I don't want to pass on the bad stuff. Have you got kids? You're like, I don't want to, I don't want them to get my bad stuff. I want to get the good stuff. So that's not the emphasis. The emphasis here I think is on teach. Older women are to teach. Don't keep it to yourself. Teach. Pass it on. And at some point, all of us teach. We've talked about that before. Every single one of us has opportunities to teach and pass on what God has shown us. But I think Paul is emphasizing here. He could have said to all of them, teach all, everyone teach everyone. He's emphasizing this to older women. Why is he doing that? I think he's saying there's a special role for older women in passing on their character traits to younger women. He could have just said, young women do these things. 
But he doesn't say that. He says older women teach these things. We'll talk about the things for the younger women here in a minute. But he says older women teach these things. Because there's a clear recognition. There's an important part for all of you women. There's an important part of your character growth that needs to come from older women. I could try really hard. I'm not sure I could pass it on to you. Your husbands probably can't pass it on to you. You probably need to learn some things from older women. More spiritually mature women who are following Christ. And so, I know so many of you women in this church are very humble, and I really appreciate that, but if you just sort of sit there and recognize and say, wow, I think I probably do have a role as an older woman, an older woman in this church, I would just please encourage you, almost beg you, please step into that role. Please pass on your character traits and these things that you've learned, pass them on to younger women because you're kind of the only one who can do it. I think that's what Paul's saying here. So he goes on and he says, older women, teach these things to younger women. Well, it's kind of like, oh, here's what they're going to teach you. Well, let's look at the things that younger women are to be taught. To love your husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Again, young is a relative term. I think it means somewhere along the way, somewhere along the journey. You're young, you're along the way. Some of us are kind of young always, right? So what's the first thing? Love their husbands and children. And the emphasis here, I think, is really on being tender. On being tender with your husbands and children, right? I think it's probably very easy to say, yeah, I love my husband or I love my kids, but I really don't like them very much. (laughs) Especially today, at the end of the day, or whatever they've done. I don't like them. Or it's easy to say, well, I love them, but I'm kind of just putting up with them. I don't think that's really tender. I don't think that's really what we should be aiming for. But I think it's not just fondness or delight. We should be fond. I think there's an emphasis here. Yeah, be fond and delight in your family. But I think that love should really spring from a heart devoted to God. It needs to come from a heart devoted to God and a heart that desires their best. And sometimes that best doesn't just mean doting on them or doing whatever they want, but helping them. For kids, it's instructing them and correcting them. I think that's what he's calling them to here. The next thing he goes on to here, we'll hit two of these here, pure and kind. Pure and kind, I think those sort of go together and are sort of straightforward. It just means not making allowance for impurity or anger. How easy it is, isn't it, in the busy and challenging work of each day to let impurity slip in, isn't it? To get angry, to have thoughts that are angry and bitter and impure, have harsh words, to be sarcastic, to be unkind in our actions, to be selfish. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. He also says, young women, teach them to work at home. Other translations would define this as makers of a God-honoring home. And now I understand this is a big can of worms. And this rubs us the wrong way in our culture. And I get that. 
And I'm not going to unpack that here because that's a big, long, whole other sermon and teaching. And so we'll just sort of walk through what I see here. I think there's a focus here on the home. And I know we live in modernity and roles are fluid and that's how things go in the culture and that's where it is. But I think what we see here is that making a God-honoring home is God's call to you. That's God's call to you, young women especially. And so as far as where you work, whether you work at home or you work outside the home, I'm trusting each one of you, you make that decision, you be in faith, you work with your husbands if you have one, and your family and your circumstances, and so I won't judge you, and I won't condemn you, and this church won't. We don't have some membership line and say, Yo, well, you've got to be working at home, whatever we define that as. That's not what any of this is about. Are you a maker of a God-honoring home? And I'll say first and foremost to those of you moms, I know there's a lot of you out there who've said, you know what, I'm going to give up working outside of the home and I'm going to come work in my home with my family and my kids. And I want to say today, God honors you for doing that. It's not an exclusion that you're not honored for not doing that, but God honors you for doing that. And I want to say that to you. Hey, God honors you, and so do we. Because we know that is cross-cultural. That's not what the world tells you to do. And that is a hard thing, and it is a huge sacrifice. It is a financial sacrifice. It is a personal sacrifice. It is a big deal. And it comes with lots of opposition and lots of persecution and lots of sly looks and judgments and passive-aggressive comments. And God honors you for walking in that. And on the flip side of that, I'd say those of you moms who are staying at home, don't worship being at home. Don't think, oh, somehow I've attained some great thing that is the higher level of spirituality. Don't worship that. Worship Christ alone. Worship Christ alone. And then for those of you who have maybe come to a decision in faith to work outside the home, that's great. And that's your choice. And we don't condemn you and God doesn't condemn you for that. And let me challenge you with this because it, it can be challenging Do you understand that God still calls you to make a God-honoring home if you work outside your home? The call is still here. He didn't say, well, here's my instructions, so if you work at home, he didn't say that. Make a God-honoring home, regardless of what you're doing for a career or who you work for. I hope that's clear. I think these instructions apply to all. So ask yourself that question, regardless of where you're at. And you know what? You could be a mom who's staying at home, and you're not making a God-honoring home. So ask yourself that question. Man, am I engaged in making my home one that honors God? I know many of you are in a variety of different situations, and I want to just honor you for that. And then there's this one, submissive to their own husbands. It's real popular in our culture, isn't it? Go out and talk about being submissive to the husband. It's a whole other can of worms. What does it mean? Again, this would be a whole other message, and there would be so much to unpack. So I'm just going to give you a couple thoughts to chew on here. First thought is this. I think that the heart of submission is respect, not subservience. He doesn't say be a, a slave to your husband. 
He says, submissive. It's not about slavery. I think it's about honoring your husband's love and leadership. I think that's what it's about. Second thing, I think if you're younger, you can learn this practically best from older women who've walked it out. Older women who've walked it out are probably the ones who are going to be able to tell you how to make this work, what it means practically, what it looks like day to day, moment by moment, emotion by emotion. And there's a number of them who are sitting here right now. Go seek them out and ask them how you might walk that out if you don't think you're walking it out. The third thing I would say is maybe from a theoretical standpoint or an understanding standpoint, it's best understood in a marriage context. What do I mean by that? Rather than me having a public lecture about what I think submission is, if you are in a marriage and you're going, I don't really understand what this means. Well, you and your husband, why don't we come sit down and we'll talk about what it means. Because I don't think we can really understand it and really talk about it unless we also talk about what a husband is supposed to do and his roles and how those two fit together. We need to talk about how sacrificial love works its way out through a husband and through a wife. And that's probably the best thing if we sit down and talk about it together versus me try to lecture about it here. And I think there's no way for you to understand really what it is unless you can really understand both of those things. So that's all I want to say about that. You can talk to me later if we want to talk more about that. So let's move on. That's all Paul says to young women. Then he goes on to young men. If we go to the Amplified Version, it says to young men to be sensible and self-controlled and behave wisely, taking life seriously. And Paul tells Titus to instruct them by setting an example in these things, in good works and integrity and sound of, soundness of speech. And so there's a call to us, men, to aim for these things. Let's look at the first one, sensible. Being sensible means turning from youthful fantasies. See, when I was a little kid, I had this sort of vision in my mind. I'm going to, it was a couple things. I'm going to play football. That's what I thought. Or I'm going to be an Olympian. That was my thing. I love the Olympics. That didn't matter. Summer, winter, I kind of love both. I was like, I'll do both. Just sort of depend on which year it was as to which sort of Olympics I wanted to do. And I had this, this fancy, this fantasy that I'm going to get to do one of these things. But look at me. Do I look like I have the, the, the makeup to be any of those things? No, I'm not. And I didn't. But what if I was still trying to live that out in my 30s? That would be pretty weird. It would be really weird. We have to be honest about who God has made us to be. Men, we have to be honest with ourselves. Man, there's something freeing. There was something freeing in my life when I was able to release that and say, I don't need to chase that. I don't need to chase those youthful fantasies. Man, I think if I had, it would have wrecked my life and it would have wrecked the lives of others. So be really careful, young men. The second thing here, he says, behave wisely, which I think is probably best understood in terms of the opposite, which is to behave foolishly. (laughs) We all kind of understand foolishness, especially if you spend time with children. Does anybody here say, I want to be known as a fool? (laughs) Anybody? Nobody? Nobody wants to be known as a fool? That's good. 
And so you look at this and you go, okay, I don't want to be a fool, so that means I ought to be wise. But how do I even know what wisdom is? How do I know? Fortunately, the Bible tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I think the prayer I pray more than any other prayer is, God, I need wisdom. Will you give it to me, please? I encourage you to do the same thing. Another thing we can recognize, too, is where else can I go for wisdom? Well, young men, remember a minute ago we talked about those older men? They probably have some good wisdom for you. You could ask them as well and trust that God could reveal it to you through them. So behave wisely. Then he says also, taking life seriously. Life is serious. It's serious business. Every day, every single one of us, whether we really engage with it or not, we face life and death circumstances. Especially driving in Denver traffic. Young men, are you living this way? Are you living with seriousness or not? Are you taking life seriously? Or are you consumed with frivolous stuff? Stuff that doesn't matter. Are you taking it serious? That's Paul's call. Don't be lazy. Be serious. And that's what I think he's calling there. Probably for all of us and for young men. And now we get to sort of the last section. He talks about bond servants. Which I don't think we really have. <laughs> per se, in this culture, or do we? I think we do. Paul was addressing a class of people at that time who essentially were indentured to other people. Their lives were given over to other people. Some of them would have been slaves. Others would have probably been part of this, sort of like part of this family. You guys like this show? Did you like this show? Servants. whose lives were given over to somebody else. Now, Obviously, there would have been some overlap. I really don't believe Paul was saying, well, you got older men and younger men and older women and younger women, and then there's a whole other class of people that's servants. I don't think so. I think there's a lot of overlap. And for whatever reason, Paul said, let's talk about how we as people relate to those whom we're indentured to. And I think that overlap still exists today, and we should just consider this, hey, if you're under contract to provide work, to somebody else, you're a bond servant, essentially. Anybody who's got a job, me included, right? We're indentured to somebody or something else, a corporation or whatever. So let's look at what he has to say to this, and I think these things definitely apply to all of us, right? The first thing he says is submissive to their masters. Ooh, there's that word submission again. He doesn't say a slave to, he says submissive to their masters. And you think about your life and who you work for, are you submissive to your master? Now, if they ask you to violate the law or to sin, I don't think you're under oath or under obligation to do that. There's a moral code there that you can live by, but are you submissive to the people you work for? And the boss says, do this. Do you say, yeah, okay, all right. So he wants to do. Second thing, he says, well-pleasing. Are you well-pleasing to the whoever you work for? Why, ultimately, are you in a job? Why do you have a job? Well, think about it this way. Why did they hire you? They probably hired you so they could make money. <laughs> and that's your job. You have agreed contractually to help them. That's your job. 
And it's almost secondary that you get a living from it. Right? You get something out of it, but you're there to do something for them. And so we should look at this and say, yeah, I really should be trying to please whoever I'm working for. I think that's a good principle. Paul then says, shouldn't be argumentative. I like the idea of not causing drag on the operations. Not causing drag on the operations. And that doesn't, I don't think that means don't have a voice. You know, everybody's work situation is different and maybe you have a little more voice or a little more authority in things and there's a place to speak up and say, should we do this? But think about it. We probably know the difference between being argumentative and not being argumentative. And I've really struggled with this myself in a variety of things. You know, if I, if I struggle with this now, since I'm the only one who works here, it means I'm talking to myself, right? I'm arguing with myself. I don't do that. But I've had that in the past when I've worked for companies. And I've recognized, man, I've been really argumentative. And that just places such a drag on things. So check yourself. Check yourself. Are you in a habit of arguing or being disagreeable? As Paul's calling us to live differently. He then goes on and says, not pilfering. Such a great word, pilfer. What does that mean? It just means stealing, right? Not stealing. And I think we all have heard this in a lot of places, even our culture doesn't think stealing is very good. But when you work for somebody, it's actually pretty easy to steal from them, isn't it? They've sort of opened the house to you. You've got access to secrets. You've got access to materials. You've got access to information. You've got access to office supplies. It's really easy. Paul's saying don't. Don't. God would have you protect your employees' belongings, their materials, their property, their secrets, their information. That honors God. So we should try to live that way. Finally, he gets here to showing all good faith. Another way to think about this would be prove yourself trustworthy. See, when you're trusted, what happens? It says there on the screen, being trusted leads to advancing. You know what? If you worked for me and you were trustworthy, I'd be like, well, come on and do something else because I can trust you. But I think there's another spiritual principle, which is when you are trusted, when you show good faith and you prove yourself trustworthy, you're going to have a chance to impart the gospel into your work environment. So Paul's calling us, he's calling us as bondservants to do all of these things. So why should we do all of this? We made it to the end, there's a big long list, and that's probably, ooh, that's kind of overwhelming, but man, you might go, these are hard things. These are deep things. And they are. They're going to take time, and they're going to take effort, and they're going to take sacrifice. But I want you to catch this. Paul is not telling us, just do these things. Here's a list and go do these things. Although he is saying do these things, that's not the main thing. And then I think we could also say, well, okay, so he's telling us, teach these things to others. So it means I kind of got to do these things here. I got to get this in my life so that I can teach it to others. But I think there's something more here. We have to understand the context of doing and teaching. And it ties back to what we said at the beginning. Paul is telling us to go after these character traits and to teach these character traits within the connected community. That's the church. That's what he's calling us to do. It's all wrapped up here. This isn't a list. Here, it's on your, you're on your own. Go do it. He's saying, here's a list. Go grow together. And so we want to be doing that as a church 
I want to be doing that with you all as a church. It's where God has called us. He's called us to walk in this together, to grow in these things together, to recognize, man, we got a lot of growth to do. We've got a lot of relationship building and character building to do together. So that's my challenge to you today is, would you consider being part of this community and growing in these character traits together? So that's what I have for you this morning. I'll pray and close our time. Hey God, thank you for the words of instruction from Titus, Lord. And man, even as I go through these, I go, wow, that's, that's a long list. And probably each one of those things we could launch into whole other messages and a whole bunch of other thoughts. And God, I don't know if I shared all the right things or the perfect things, but um, God, I just trust you want us to grow. You want us to grow together and, and teach each other. Whether we're older or younger or sometimes older or sometimes younger. Wherever you've got us, walking this out, God, we trust we have things to learn about you and about character from each other. And yet, God, we recognize even in the midst of that, there's a sacrifice that has to be made to be close to other people. There's a sacrifice of time and a sacrifice of effort. And God, would you help us walk in that by your Spirit? Help us to walk in that. Help us to learn and to grow and to love each other and to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.